Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. of Sport podcast with sports editor Mike Finch and sports scientist Professor Ross Tucker. So welcome to our first episode of 2024 of the Science of Sport podcast. Uh, thank you for putting up with us over the last wee, uh, couple of weeks as we take a bit of a break over the festive season. And a big thank you to Joanne Murphy, who is um, doing our voiceover, our intro and some of our links in our podcast as we uh, revitalize our look and feel and with a different artwork on our um, features. And also, don't forget also our little uh, intros as well. So thank you very much to her. And you will hear her doing our intros for the next uh, couple of years. I reckon as we get into season six of the Science Support podcast, can you believe it? Season number six. Thank you to all of you who've been supporting us over this time, uh, particularly those of you on Patreon. And uh, don't forget, you can also, if you're not a member of our Patreon support base, you can get on to patreon.com and look for Science Support podcast. And for the price of a coffee, um, you can be a supporter of ours and get some exclusive content, newsletters, all that sort of thing. Right, so to kick things off in 2024, let's catch up with some of the news that's been happening in the world of uh, sports science. And there certainly has been some interesting stuff. Not least of all was a world record in the world 10 kilometer um, by a woman by the name of Agnes Ingetich. How do you say it? Ingetich. Ingetich, I would Ingetich, there we go. 28.46. But I mean, that wasn't the real story. I mean, in fact, she was incredibly fast over the 5k as well wasn't she amazing yeah these world records are interesting because they're not all that interesting maybe anymore as would you say i don't know like yeah i mean i actually missed it to be honest because yeah, uh, uh, it's just it does seem to happen every single week like world records used to be generational achievements that yeah. made you say what a breakthrough and then okay we learn a little bit more and then we started to get cynical and skeptical about world records i think a lot of people are now disillusioned by them because mm -hmm. they're so frequent as to be almost i'm not going to say meaningless because obviously they have meaning i just don't know if it's the same meaning we're accustomed to them having so and goes and runs a world record by a lot like 20 something seconds faster than the previous mm. equals <laughs> equals a world record on the way to a world record if i like it's unbelievable yeah so and then you compare that to what the 10k track time is and she's it's faster than that yeah i mean it's and there might be reasons for that mm. and the 5k time she runs 1413 through five on the roads the track world records 1401 the time she runs at 10 on the world athletic scoring tables is equivalent to a 1350 odd i think i read in the analysis that i saw so yeah, 1343 yeah, yeah that's it so yeah, that tells yeah. you that that track world record is due to go remember that fell this <laughs> year and faith kipiagon i think has got it but G gide is close to 14 there's a f there's probably a handful of women who could go under 14 in 2024 well, and a few years ago it was 1410 1412 was the mm. barrier so it shows you where we are yeah 
I mean, sub 15 a few years ago was an outstandingly good 5K time on the track. Yeah, these days, if you're yeah. only sub 15, you're not even getting invited to yeah. like the second tier global meetings, yeah. never mind the Diamond Leagues. You have to be Crazy. 14, 30 or faster to, to mm-hmm. look in there. Yeah. So it's, it's like, this is, this is where we are, you know? It's just these times have a different meaning to what they used to have. And I made the point in response to Tim Hutchings, who's the commentator, does the Diamond League. He, mm. he complains regularly about the lack of regulation of the shoes has created this situation. He's not alone. We've done that on this podcast. We've done yeah. f- three or four times, bemoaned the failure to see this coming mm. and devaluing performances. And there clearly needs to be some line drawn where they say pre and post, you know, BCAD vibes. <laughs> Yeah. Because that's, and that's part of it. But for me now, the bigger problem is, is that 15, 20 years ago, when a world record in running got broken, mm-hmm. there was skepticism about doping. Yeah. And if, a, and if a performance improvement was too good to be true, we had a, within relative construct now, a reasonable confidence to doubt it because of doping. Now we don't, because there are two moving parts that are so if, important to the time doping and technology that it's really hard to know what we're looking at that's what that's what i Mm -hmm. find the shoes doing the most damage to is Mm -hmm. our ability to interpret you know like okay you had to be cynical 15 20 years ago because you know there was epo in the sport and what was happening but like you could you could frame your cynicism (laughs) yeah am i making sense you know like does it does it no no absolutely no, and, and that's why, like, then, then what happened in response to Tim Hutchins' tweets was people kicked off and said, Tim, you're, you, you're missing the obvious. It's got to be doping only. Well, no, I, it's got to be the shoes and potentially the doping thing hasn't gone away. But I think the shoe is like the shiny new disco ball that is distracting people from the possibility that they may also still be doping. Yeah. But it's clearly not a zero benefit thing. But then neither is doping zero. So now we've got, I don't know, there's, there's two. It's, it's like I would use the analogy and I did on Twitter. It's like if you make a stew and you want each of the flavors to come out, but then you put so much salt and so much something else in there that in the end, nobody knows what else is in it. Yeah. That's, that's where performance is now. No one else knows how it's made because two flavors are overpowering the taste. Mm. Yeah. I think what's interesting, I mean, and because there's not a lot of, research around this is that how the shoe technology i mean every year there's a new model of these super shoes that comes out and to what extent are they getting better and better at improving performances and Mm. where is potentially the plateau Mm. if there will ever be one will there always be shoe development that will improve times because at this level of agnes um is that she she could she could be running in a new shoe next year that will give another 1%, therefore she could break the record again and again Yeah, and by again. another 15 seconds. Yeah, and it's yeah. not her. And that's the yeah, point, I guess, her. right? Like world records were meant her. to be a mm. leap forward for human physiology and mm. our ability to train and develop that physiology. Now mm. it's, it's the same human physiology with the same development and optimization, but just running faster because of like ground human interaction via the shoe. That's, that's exactly the problem, I think. Because when when the when the first vapor fly was introduced and there was that research, it was still a complex problem because remember it showed a four point two percent reduction in oxygen cost, and then you have to extrapolate what does that actually mean for performance? Well, that depends on how fast you're going. It depends mm-hmm. on how you responded to the shoe. That's a whole other thing. In Isengetich, 
like the women's marathon world record from last year is she just a magnificent responder to a shoe and she's 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 trying out different types different models and she's getting that benefit i don't know but uh, the point is when there was only one it was a it was a complex problem but a, a, a simpler complex problem now you've got the complex problem made more complex by evolution and development mm -hmm. in tech and individual response versus non-response and meanwhile there's there's another there's two elephants in the room and everyone's looking at one and maybe the other one's there but then everyone else is saying forget this one look at that one it's a mess the running is a mess yeah i agree what's it i mean you touched on it very briefly there but i always wonder I mean, there will. So I wonder if there's anybody looking at this research. When you talk about responders and non-responders, what makes a responder versus a non-responder? In other mm. words, is it leg length? Is, is it the size of the foot? Yeah. Is it the flexibility of the Achilles? The, the way you strike forefoot yeah, like versus all sorts heel. Of things. I'd, I'd be fascinated to know, like if you look at all these records that we've seen over the last couple of years, which type of athlete if there is one, has been the one to be the best. Is there a similarity in terms of, of their physiology that have allowed them to take advantage of yeah. the technology? In other words, do shorter runners take it more less advantage or more advantage on these shoes? It would be interesting to see that yeah. because it could be dependent I, on physiology. Actually. I agree. Like people who have a high loading rate maybe get like 1% yeah. more return and that's the difference. Yeah. But we do know the, the range in responders versus non-responders is huge. Mm. We discussed last year on the pod, I think, couple of studies that came out and I'll, I'll find the links and put them in the show notes where you could try eight different shoes and your best to your worst was five or six percent yeah so i mean that's that's minutes in a that, marathon yeah, this level it's a lot it's huge right like yeah. so and and i said at the time what this means is that you could basically if you gave 10 athletes random access to a bucket of shoes and they had to pick blindfolded and run the same race 10 different times, you could see a completely different result on account of nothing more than shoe response. <laughs> so so it's, that's how it is. So I, if I was an athlete and athletes have done this, I would very seriously go and test five or six different shoes in lab settings and see which one I benefit the most from and then hope like hell it's my sponsor's one. Yeah. Because if it's not, then I have to try and ask my sponsor to make a... Uh, well, I've got to try and ask that company to make a, a blank unbranded shoe and then yeah. stick sponsor which, logos which, on which it, which does, has been done. Which has been done, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's that was been done 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah for so sure. that's, that's where we are. And then I think that, so, so I agree with you. I think the responder, non-responder thing is really interesting, mm. really complex though, because mm. there are so many moving parts in biomechanics that will affect that. And then the other interesting thing, I think, is how it's changed training. Mm. Because if an athlete has access to this shoe and they can afford an expensive shoe with a short lifespan, so that we're talking elites now. But what you know, when you think about a marathon runner or even a 10K runner who's probably doing 150 to 180K a week regularly, the biggest limiting factor is damage. Yeah. It's the one thing that constrains you from doing that 5% more quality work, 10% more volume. And if these shoes are, as is purported, reducing the degree of damage, then the training ceiling has gone up. And that would be interesting to explore. And many of those elite athletes do say that they're able to train more. Mm. There's definite evidence. I remember that. like right just before lockdown, there was a conference in which research was presented in ultra trail runners where muscle soreness and perceived exertion was lower in these shoes than in regular running shoes. And that's ultra runners, right? Yeah. So yeah, you would imagine that it might shift the proportion of intensity might increase the 
overall volume of training with the same proportion of inter- but either way you're still going to get benefit so yeah. that would be really interesting to know about so so yeah I, d- I don't i don't agree with people who say that the shoes are not the factor anymore i don't know if they are and i don't know how much they're the factor but they clearly are non-zero factors they are something yeah and then of course you have it's kenya it's east africa where we know that we know it because so many athletes get done for doping like i, yeah. I couldn't even tell you the last three or four because i see it and i just gloss over it i say oh, another one another one another one you know in the last few weeks there have been two or three at least that i can think of mm. it must be it must be approaching 100 in the last five years all from kenya which is an epidemic yeah so yeah. even though Ngetich herself hasn't you know okay never failed a test now i sound like lance armstrong but Ngetich herself i can't think i've not seen direct links to dopers training squads coaches and so on but I mean, you just are by association questionable. Mm. It's just the reality of it. An interesting thing that you mentioned at the start of that was the fact that obviously this road time has outstripped the yes. the track time. But there is a difference yeah. in the rules regarding the kind of shoes that you wear. So could that be a factor in the fact that you actually have more of a technological advantage on the road with yes. different heel heights it could well be because okay so back to basics here listeners may remember the road shoe was the first one was that marathon running vapor fly yeah and this and the key issue there was it's the foam and the carbon fiber plate interaction the carbon fiber plate had been tried before but it didn't work because it was flat so it turns out that probably to get the benefit from carbon fiber you need it to be curved and there were technical things a guy called darren stephenson had done some work showing many years ago that if you put a carbon fiber plate you increase the work that was required at the ankle joint and so that might have made the cost higher and so whatever cost reduction you got was offset by that loss right? yeah. or that increase in in demand the curvature seems to get rid of that. So, so it's an essential component of these shoes is that they're curved. But the only way you can curve it is to build the back of the shoe up so that you can create what basically imagine like a, a soup ladle. <laughs> yeah. That's what it looks like. Yeah. And so the first shoes that came out had this like huge what's called stack height to enable it. It's a scaffold basically that allowed thick foam, high elastic energy return but st- stabilized by this carbon fiber plate. And sure enough, that tech made its way into the track. The World Athletics Authority's response to shoes was to limit that stack height, but they limited it differently on the road than they did on the track. So on the road, you can have a bigger stack height than you can in a track spike. Yeah. And so if the stack height and the degree to which you curve that carbon fiber is the factor, then it does make sense that there's a potentially 1%, half a percent, whatever it is, greater benefit in a road shoe than a track spike now what'll be interesting to see is whether you see so they can't and 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 in fact i remember at the time athletes were running track races in the road shoe because they knew that it was going to benefit them they can't anymore so it may well be that within the next three years all the road records outstrip the track records which had never happened before i was going to say just to put that into context normally the track will be faster than the road purely because it's you know, you're not going through any corners. It's and, flat and the tartan yeah. gives you greater energy return than yeah. the tarmac does. Mm. But now even what the tracks give can't match what the shoes provide, mm. it would appear. Mm. So so that, that that element alone tells you that the shoes are not nothing. Yeah. Like yeah. some people are wanting to dismiss them. It'd be interesting to see and, what she could do on the track over the same distance right. wearing the track shoes. Then you could actually do a quite a, a yeah. relatively simple experiment to say, well, she's actually... The lowest stack yeah. actually is the difference by X amount. 
There was some confusion, which is again typical of what's been created in the space about what shoe she was in. She was in Adidas Takumi Sen 9, which has got a heel thickness of 33 mil. Now the mm. limit in the track is 25. So she's a good 25% too big at the back for a track shoe. But on the road, no problem. And then with that, what Adidas have got is not a full carbon fiber plate, but it's really just semantics because what they've done is they've just split the plate into five like fingers almost. Yeah. And so they're almost trying to mimic the metatarsals of the foot. So they call them energy rods, but it's the same concept. It's a carbon, it's a stabilizing carbon fiber plate. The fact that they're rods or plate for me is um, it's just semantics. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, she is, she is benefiting from shoe tech. That shoe tech may well be improving. Maybe they're changing the stiffness, changing the curvature. Who knows? But the yeah, the problem is you get these records and they kick off this furious debate and no one is actually celebrating human evolution, advancement. Mm. I mean, we ran a story two years ago now in Runners World talking about the shoe wars. Mm. And it actually has become a bit like that. That's what it feels like. It's like one week Adidas break a record and then yeah. a couple of weeks later Nike do it and they're, they're almost trying to outmarket each other as to who's got the fastest shoe mm. and it's becoming less about the athlete and more about the technology which we which is kind of what yeah, we've exactly, said exactly. but it is it is an interesting <laughs> thing to see because there's, mm. there's those two brands in particular are the ones that seem to be facing off against each other every yeah. every second although I think Adidas has probably got the edge now in terms of records um, they may well have now, yeah. 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 But, um, but and remember, Nike, this is the Nike same. Led the, led the way. It's the same pattern we saw in swimming in 2007, mm. 8, 9, where Speedo came out with that LZR laser racing suit, and then Arena had to imitate. And there was a there were a few others, the swimsuits that you'd never heard of, but they had mm. joined the war and made really fast swimsuits. And then all of a sudden, FINA at the time, they were called, now World Aquatic, said, no, nope, this is enough. We're going to say knees to waist for men and knees to shoulders for women, and that's it. And I think it yeah. does. I mean, it, it constrains the commercial landscape, but it, in, it ensures the integrity of the world records a little, at least a little bit, or at least the meaning. Mm. Maybe anyway, it's too late for that. This is the new. Yeah, it's not, I was going to say it's not going to change anything. Mm. I mean, we've got you know, in in sports science terms, we can talk about BC before carbon and uh, after carbon. Yeah, so, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. Talking about performance, um, in cycling, there's been a lot of discussion on the various platforms around the um, what the rule that, well, so now it's a rule now by the UCI, who've now banned these. T- will be. Well, will be. As Sorry, I understand, it'll be. be 2025. That's right, yeah. Mm. So they're banning these interned brake hood levers. And for anybody that's watched uh, Tade Pagacha, you would have seen him riding with these almost turned in brake hoods. And it, so there's a bit of a debate about the fact that these are turned in off normal handlebars, but there's also this discussion about how if you're riding bars that are slightly flared, that gives you a natural intern of the bar, mm. and therefore you have this natural intern. So it looks like they're going to keep the gravel flared bars that are still be legal, which means we might see more flared bars in road yeah. cycling. And but the, but the band version is when you're turning those levers in, not in line with the flare of the bar. Yeah, I don't know so, whether I'm explaining this properly. But yeah, I suppose if you're not watching much cycling and it's not your sport, you might say, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> yes. But basically, if you watch, if you if you're standing dead in front of a guy coming towards you on a bike, the brake hoods, which are those guys at the top to sort of house the brake levers, mm. and the drops, which is the curvature, I think buffalo horns, of the, those are pretty much on the same plane. You know, they're in line with one another. Now, four years ago, a trend was in present in cycling where when a cyclist was off the front and trying to get away from the peloton 
they would try and adopt as, as aerodynamic a position as possible. And that typically involved putting their forearms on the handlebars and then getting into what looks like a time trial position. But now your hands are holding nothing. And they mm. used to call this puppy paws because effectively you got like your parallel forearms and your hands are just sort of dangling off the front of the bike. Unbelievably now, dangerous. That, now, if, if something happens and you've got to break, you've got to get out of that position, get your hands onto the hood, then break. You can see why this is or a problem. Or if you hit a bump in the road. Yeah, because you've got no, you got no like physical control over the bike other than maneuvering it with your forearms. So they said, understandably, that's not going to be allowed. You've got to have your hands in contact with the bike. So I think the, so you create a problem and people will solve it. And so the solution was, well, then we'll turn the hoods in so far that we can basically be in that position and still have our hands on the hoods of the bike. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that got, <laughs> it got extreme. So you make really narrow handlebars with in-turned brake hoods. So you angle them inwards and you can basically get into the time trial position on a road bike. Mm. Now, where this I think is interesting, and I don't disagree that they needed to do something about it, is that I was listening to a podcast in which they interviewed Ben Healy's coach. It's called The Performance Process by the Escape Collective guys. And he was saying he was frustrated with it because, in his opinion, the intern brake levers weren't dangerous. Narrow handlebars weren't more dangerous. The handling was fine. The braking was fine. So now he has reason to say that because his guy, who was so successful last year, Ben Healy, has got quite narrow. I think he said 33 centimeters, yeah, which is like, I mean, I couldn't get into that. I'd feel yeah. like I was wearing and a corset. You can visibly see him when he's riding. He looks very Really, really narrow. In, yeah. But he's a tiny guy, right? So, they're, okay, that's propor- maybe it's proportional to his shoulder width yeah. and he can get away with it. Mm. Says the handling is not a problem. Fine. Access to the brakes is not a problem. The guy interviewing him on the process is Ronan McLaughlin, who's the Everesting world record holder, incidentally. He says when he turned his in, he did find that it was more awkward to brake, and he didn't have the braking power and the braking reaction time and speed. So, okay, so it's one guy saying one thing, one another. To me, what's interesting again about this is that the UCI have made this change based on what from the outside appears to be a collection of objections, mm-hmm. anecdotal, you know? Because it would actually be, quite easy to test whether intern brake hoods do compromise braking performance. You could just ask 50 sub-elite guys to go along a flat road at 40k an hour with a car behind them and then when the siren goes off brake and measure how long it takes them to slow down to 10, for instance. It wouldn't Hmm. be that difficult to do. Now, what you do with that is trickier, but, but still, the point is that in, in where I'm working with world rugby, we, we are quite committed to publishing evidence that informs law change for the benefits of welfare. I don't see the UCI doing that. I read a piece on Bike Radar where Mick Rogers, who's head of UCI Innovations, talks about they've got evidence that turning the brake levers in puts more stress and strain on the handlebars and can cause them to brake. Okay, cool. So there's obviously some evidence. I, I just... I like the idea of like having these things out there for people to look at and evaluate mm. and explain your reasoning kind of thing. And I, you see, I never seem to do that. We spoke before when um, Gino Maida died in the Tour of Switzerland last year, very tragically. Like you see, I, I don't know that they have a real understanding about what the risk factors are for, for causing accidents. Are there more accidents because of intern break hoods? Yes or no? If yes, and you know that that's the factor that caused it, then you obviously have to ban it but is it true or is it just a feeling is you basing your decisions on evidence or is it emotion i don't know yeah i think the interesting thing and this is just a feeling i get from the uci traditionally the uci have tried to keep cycling 
in other words, they don't they don't necessarily embrace a lot of change because I think one of the mm. real strengths of cycling is that there is a level reasonably level playing field. So you know, look at the design of right. bikes. Bikes are relatively the same design. You can't. Yeah, when you, watch, yeah. when you watch when you watch Venegor beat Pogacar, you don't yeah. go if only Pogacar was on a Sevilla. Yes, and and yeah. and lo- and yeah. largely, yeah. you could say that that the top yeah. riders in the world are riding bikes that are equally in terms that, yeah. of performance. So, yeah. so yeah. once you start once you start playing around with intern brake levers and you know Superman positions like they banned before, mm. you're suddenly starting to mess with the ethos of what cycling is really about. So I kind of support it. Because I kind of because I believe that you actually once you start allowing that, how far do you let it go? Hmm. And even though there might be evidence to and for and against it, essentially it's changing yeah. the design of the bike, which is not what the UCI are known to let go very easily. I don't disagree, and I, I do think my feeling is on this, and I've never I've, look to be clear. I've never swung the brake levers in by 30 degrees and said, let me see how this goes. And mm. I don't think I ever will. No. Um, I'm not very good, as you know, keeping the bike upright, even <laughs> with my current brake levers in the old fashioned positions. <laughs> but um, but I, I agree with you. And the problem I suppose that that will create is that when you try and constrain, like what you said is like, at what point does it stop? Like how far does it go? In that landscape, everything you do will seem arbitrary. Yeah, because someone will always be pushing up against the line that you've drawn, and I said, "But why is it? Why is this line there? Why couldn't we go a little bit further?" And like, actually, you have to make some kind of call. You do, and you'll never, and you'll never be able to precisely justify why it's X, not Y. Mm. So therefore, you just set it at Z, and you say, "Like, let's get on with it now. Let's, mm. you know, it just equalizes everything." Yeah. So yeah. I do understand that as a rationale, but it was interesting in the discussion. There was all this talk about. It's definitely more dangerous. It contributes to more accidents. But these are bold assertions. There's just no evidence for them. So it would be nice for that process and that conversation to be a little bit more transparent Mm. and informed by evidence. Because even if, I think, even if there was no evidence for danger, I think you could still regulate it on the basis of what you've just said. Yeah. Just making a level playing field and establishing a line in the sand. Absolutely. Exactly. This is interesting, though, to see how you say no puppy paws, then okay you've created a problem here's the solution okay that solution's not allowed interesting to know what's next and this article on bike radar talks about the flared bars yeah. and that'll be the next thing because that allows you to get the brake levers narrower closer together and at an angle without being at an angle almost in a way and so i know you've set your road bike up in that way and i'm i'm going to get the same on my gravel bike as the flares and i'm interested to see how i feel on them yeah because i think that that's what the difference are in terms of performance is an, is an interesting one, but for us as sort of lifestyle riders, wearing uh, putting the flared bars on my road bike has meant two things. First of all, it's com- it's more comfortable, particularly in the drops. So for those of you that ride bikes, you'll understand that mm. that normally the drops on your road bike are a lot lower. So yeah, if you're, you need reach, you need, need, reach, need yeah. reach, whatever where is on yeah. the on the flared yeah. bars, they tend to be shallower drops. In other words, you're sitting a bit more upright, so you tend to be in the drops more than you would normally be. But they are a bit narrow on the hoods, so that that can feel a bit restrictive when you initially get on them. But they they are more comfortable, and because they're angled in, there is an element of comfort there that is yeah. that is obvious. But I think based on that and looking at some of the um, sort of words that are coming from UCI and the experts, I think we're going to see flared mm. bars as part of the pro peloton going forward. How yeah. far that flare is and what is. Good era-wise and performance-wise, I think will be up for debate. Yeah, 
But um, I think it's it's going to be an interesting discussion. And I think we're going to see more of that because it, there's so many road bikes and so many frames now that you can get where the flare is, you know, two or three degrees. You can get 11, 12 degrees on some of these adventure yeah. bikes. So I've seen that the trek has got a th- three centimeter difference. Yeah. It's so that whatever that angle is creates three centimeters greater mm. width at the drops than at the hoods. Mm. So you can now you can get it with narrower hoods, which is in theory more aerodynamic. I saw some stats. It works out to, and this is a tiny difference, but I suppose meaningful for some people. It's about a second every three kilometers. Yeah, that's, that's top the, level. That's, that's the performance yeah. benefit. <laughs> now that's that's ten seconds in a thirty k time trial. Mm. Okay, they're not riding time trials on these bikes, but you get the idea. But yeah, the comfort thing is, in, and that's why I'm keen to get mine. Uh, I, mm. I'm looking forward to seeing what that feels like. Because I think it's the, yeah. the, the traditionalist in me, and I was discussing the, the, the cricket the other day with somebody talking about the modern T20 game, and I think the same, I have, a, I have this attitude towards cricket being more traditionalist in terms of the game. So it's the same thing in cycling. Once you start, I, I don't think, for instance, you should have specific time trial bikes, because I think yeah. then, the, then you, it's the technology that starts to weigh up on the performance. Whereas in the old days, when you saw yeah. before before Greg LeMond put aero bars in his bike in mm. 1989, you know everybody was riding their road bikes in a time trial, mm-hmm. and, and the, even the skin suits actually. Yeah, mm. yeah, and the helmets. Uh, those all make a big mm. difference. Mm. See, so you can't necessarily change that, but you know if you take it right back to you the could, genesis, you could of say it. that road helmets must be used in time trials. Yeah. No reason yeah. he couldn't do that. Yeah. Why well, must they use these bubble helmets? In fact, that, as I understand, that is a conversation that is on the table. You you might recall, remember Stefan Kung crashed in, I think it was European Time Trump Championships, where he basically just rode straight into a barrier. Oh, that's right. Yes. No, 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 and, he finished, and he crossed the finish line, and there was that debate about how brave this was, but it was actually just like really foolish looking. Because <laughs> he, he, was, he was absolutely hammered by this thing. He cuts all over his head, maybe concussed, helmet was cracked. It was not a, not a good look at all. Uh, he he actually has said himself that he thinks the position you're in in a time trial now is quite a dangerous one. You can only see three or four meters ahead of you at 55k an hour. That's you, yeah, yeah. And, and so and Fre- Chris Rims even said that, isn't so, he? Yeah, so I've seen I've seen discussion that the bars, the aero bars, might be banned. I'd, I'd be very surprised if they went that far, but mm. maybe they will. Yeah, maybe we do go back to road bike setups in time trials mm. i'd have no objection at all i also want to see the best guy win and not the best equipment yeah. yeah and then you get the big budget teams you know that can afford to do the most wind tunnel testing and the most adjustments and the most sophisticated equipment have mm. a 20 second advantage in a 30k time trial that's not why yeah. i want to watch cycling and that can be the difference between a, whoever wins the gc it can be based on that and then you suddenly you know mm. and, and even if you trickle that down to the lower levels you know if you're looking at sort of junior level at an at, even in south africa there will be juniors mm. who will have a top of the range time trial bike mm. competing against juniors who can't do that therefore they win the south african championship yeah. because they yeah. have the better equipment mm. and again it takes away from the essence of what cycling is really about yeah and again it's yeah. like you look at track cycling track cycling is a place for that to happen yeah that kind of innovation but i i've but seen yet, some track people cycling is more pure than the road cycling i mean track bikes are basic and and, and in terms well, of your sprint events except for instance yeah, your you, pursuits and those sort of events. i remember Ganner's one hour world record now is on yeah. a 3d printed bike that costs mid six figure dollars yeah. right yeah but i'm talking so, more specifically about racing so the so the short sprint events tend to be the same yeah, bikes and yeah. the kieran and those sort of events i heard one director of an olympic 
federations, track cycling programs say track cycling is just science on wheels. As long as you mm -hmm. have the best scientific testing and equipment, you'll win. Because the difference made by, and this is for 4K pursuits and 1K, yeah, that's the time trial and stuff like that. Yeah. As long as you've got the best equipment, like the difference between humans, it's the same argument with shoes. The difference between humans is smaller than the difference we'll find in our skin suits, our wheels, mm -hmm. and our bike setups, and our time trial frames and aerodynamics. Mm -hmm. And we'll go and win all the medals at the Olympic Games, which they duly did. I can see the Corans listening to this going, are you telling me we should go back to the old days of steel frames? <laughs> barefoot you know? running. Oh yeah, I mean, every time, thing. every time, Tim Hutchins, what do you want, Tim? You want them to run barefoot? No. Yeah. <laughs> Same story. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, it does fly in the face of what we talked about in terms of the performance advantage of running shoes. Yes. And this kind of debate does flow into cycling, but yeah. the, there is a purity yeah. about cycling, which I've always enjoyed. And I think to some extent, the UCI's attitude towards technology has been pretty good for the road maybe it is a bit dodge well questionable Some of it's really good, like the sock yeah. length thing and yeah that's that sort of yeah. stuff but it's it is interesting and cycling is a technologically advanced sport that has somehow mm. remained more pure than running is yes. which is not a technologically advanced sport yeah it's goes to show you different contexts yeah yeah mm. So um, news on the rugby and rugby NFL side. And we've uh, yeah, here in South Africa, this is an interesting one. So um, Lewis Rees-Lambert. Um, Rees-Zamet. Uh, Rees-Zamet, that's right. Zammet, um, yeah. he, he's gone from rugby to, well, is going from rugby to NFL. And we, we see we saw this in South Africa well, 20, 30 years ago with uh, our own South African <laughs> uh, champion, Nas Berta, who went to the NFL, having just gone there as a kicker yeah and i'm not quite sure how long it lasted but it wasn't very long but you went he, to the cowboys if memory yes, serves me it was before yes. my time but yeah he yes. tried out for the cowboys kicker job didn't get yes. it did he not get it I, he didn't play yeah he didn't play didn't he okay. no. i thought he actually played a couple of games maybe in the practice mm. squad or something i'm not mm. sure it was before my yeah. time yeah. but so so yeah this is interesting the nfl has got this international feeder program where they literally go and find players from outside the united states because as you can imagine the sport is almost entirely US-based. Although this, plus their moves to play more games in London, Germany, next year, well, this year, sorry, they'll be playing a game in Brazil, which is really interesting. When I was in New York for a meeting with the NFL, the guys told us that they've got literally like in the millions of people follow them in Brazil. It's like one of their biggest, it is the, it's the second biggest market of followers. So they're going to take a game to Brazil, which is really interesting. So they're obviously trying to globalize. And so if you're listening to this from the UK and Wales in particular, Reece Samet is leaving you. And if you're listening to this United States, there's a guy on, your, on his way to you called Lewis Reece Samet. And for those who don't know, Samet is a Welsh winger, played for Wales, played for the British and Irish Lions as well in the tour they came here. He's one of the bright, young, up-and-coming stars, like known for speed. And so he's, he's, one, of the, he's one of rugby's great athletes. And so that's why this is causing interest is because there have been players who've made this attempt before, but I don't think players of the caliber of Reece Samet have tried to go into the NFL. And so he now joins the class of 2024. They published the names literally this morning, as it is. Uh, who else is going to go for it? There's one other rugby player. And then there's a bunch of guys, Dominican Republic, Nigeria, a bunch of Aussies, a bunch of folk from Australia, uh, New Zealand rather, sorry. So... Yeah, it's interesting. And, and what's interesting about this is like, well, what is his chance of success? Like how well does talent and ability in rugby translate into another contact sport in which at surface level, carry the ball, evade players, be tackled or make tackles. It's the same set skill set, but they are such different sports. I was going to say that. It's really interesting yeah. to look at. Now, kickers, 
kicking is probably the one where you've got the most chance. And in fact, Henry Mallander is another name, a rugby player, who's in the same group as Reece Samets on this international program. He's going as a kicker. Like, and there's an Australian punter kicker in the NFL whose name I now don't know, of course, usually, as usual. <laughs> and uh, he, he's achieved great success, plays in the NFL. So that's one example of a guy that was identified in the AFL and has now made the transition across. But I mean, even just kicking, in rugby, you put the ball down on a tee, you've got 60 seconds, you can retreat back to the back of your run-up, you can look up at the poles four times, you can scratch each shoulder 10 times, you can do the Macarena like some kickers basically do and then kick it. Mm. An NFL kicker has to kick a ball in a moving dynamic situation, reliant on the snap, the timing, the placement. It's a, it's a very different game, right? Mm. The ball carrying positions and the tackling positions, whole new level of complexity. And so the the biggest challenge for Reece Amit is can he learn the the patterns of play, the playbooks, thousands of plays, yeah. not even exaggerating, like literally thousands of possible mm. plays that you can run. Yeah, you have to make reads of what the defense is doing. If you're a wide, so Zamet, by the way is going as a running back slash wide receiver. Can you make those reads? Can you find space once you've got the ball? Your evasion skills are different because the, you're allowed to tackle differently in the NFL. Guys can just dive in headfirst at your knees. Yeah. In rugby, you don't have to worry about that situation. So you know what's coming. So yeah, it's going to be real interesting to see. But I think the, the broader thing is, is you know, for instance, is someone like Zamet who's really good at rugby potentially disadvantaged by his rugby pattern knowledge mm. compared to someone who's never played rugby but also hasn't played NFL and has nothing to unlearn before they learn the new stuff. You, mm. you know what I mean? Mm. Interesting to wonder about that sort of thing. Yeah. And then does he have the athletic ability? Probably. He'd, he'd be he'd be in the in the batch. I mean, there are some freakish athletes in the NFL, you can imagine. Yeah. Some of what you, you get in that particular sport. And Zamet might be in the top two, five percent athletically in rugby union. He's probably not in the top 10% in the NFL, but he'll still be good enough if he can learn the game. So it'll be real interesting. My my only hope... Is there more money in the NFL than rugby, do you If think? you make it, yes. If you make it. If you make it. Yeah. I would imagine a superstar in the NFL, uh, in rugby union, is making more than the mean median NFL. Mm -hmm. But if you are me average rugby union, average NFL, way more. I mean, mm -hmm. I think I saw stats actually median in the NFL is $830,000 a year. Sure. Which is which is like right at the top end of rugby. Mm. So superstar rugby, NFL, mm. average. Yeah. So he's probably trying it out because he fancies making himself a bit more. Yeah, money. and he's spoken about it, he said mm. it's just a dream of his to go. And like it's cool. Like I think it's great. He's twenty two, yeah. twenty three, I think, this year. Mm. So, you know, if it doesn't work out, you come back to rugby union at twenty five. He's mm. still got a still eight got year, out. ten year career mm. in that sport. But mm. it's it's my only hope, and I was saying this, there was some lively discussion on the patron message board, is that w whatever happens, whether he succeeds or fails, like there's a all-access documentary that explains why. Not from his point of view, but from the NFL's point of view. Yeah. I want to know how the NFL eva evaluate the guy. Mm. I don't want his sort of side of it. I want to hear from the coaches and the strength and conditioning guys. I want them to, because I presume they'll put him through tests. I want to know what tests they do and yeah. how they interpret that. So, okay, he doesn't have the agility. 
what, okay yeah. he's really agile in rugby union not for us mm. thanks that'll be that would be That'd cool be interesting yeah. Whether, and if he succeeds i want to know why he succeeds so regardless of success or failure really want to know like and i'm sure the nfl do this kind of stuff but it'd be pretty cool to see that story get told i think yeah 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 well one thing you might have to deal with is that uh the other day the nfl had the coldest yes it was the coldest ever game in in, uh, in history there it was in the top five coldest i yeah, think it was I mean, the it coldest was... that's that something called the ice bowl like they call it the ice bowl like many years ago now in minnesota green bay i think it was green bay mm. where it was absolutely frigid but this wasn't that far off with wind chill yeah what is it minus 33 that's Celsius with Winchell. Celsius so at, at kickoff, yeah. Kansas City Chiefs against the Miami Dolphins in the wild card round. Played in the Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City's home oh, stadium. Many people there. <laughs> yeah. And in shorts and t-shirts. And st- it's unbelievable. <laughs> the players come out wearing short sleeve shirts. Okay. Which I can't believe. Like, so... Maybe yeah, the stadium's warmer than the, the inside of the stadium. Yeah. Was those temperatures, do you know, taken inside the stadium or were they ambient temperatures outside? I don't outside? know. And I mean, for yeah. sure, like on the sidelines where the teams sit, they've got giant heaters. Yeah, yeah. That's the only way you can do that. Like, mm. there's no ways. And, and NFL's probably one of the only sports where you could do it because, mm. in theory, a player, and this was happening, like a guy would go on for a play, make a catch, Travis Kelsey, bang, 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 play, come off, miss the next play or two, standing at the side with a big blanket over him, probably getting reheated passively, mm. and then back on the field again. Mm. But for guys like the quarterbacks and the and the lines, they're not getting those breaks. Mm. And so they're out there for five, six minutes making a long touchdown drive. That's that's a tough ask. And mm. yeah, but a lot of them were playing in short-sleeved shirts, which was quite rem- remarkable to me. I can't believe that they don't have warmer warmer materials but yeah it was minus four fahrenheit at kickoff which is sure. 20 degrees okay. below celsius without wow. wind chill yeah i mean unbelievably cold it was uh, yeah. it's incredible i mean what what are the what potentially happens at that level i mean you are you more likely to have injury i can imagine it must be quite difficult to play the game just by not being able to stay warm because your muscles need yeah to so be warm. Mus- muscular skeletal tendon injuries for sure because few things are happening obviously the muscle itself is getting colder mm. as long as you look you can you can stop that if you stay warm in those temperatures if you're running and exercising you'll stay warm enough but if you allow your skin temperature and consequently muscle temperature to drop then you're at risk of injury you're also at risk of underperformance which is the first thing that happens in fact there's quite good evidence that if you cool the skin the muscle gets weaker which yeah. is quite interesting so muscle force production drops at skin temperatures as skin temperature goes down. So keeping the skin warm is as important as keeping the muscle warm for performance. Mm. Then the other thing is your your nerve conduction velocity drops. And so your ability to sense and feel things is going to be impaired. You, and mm. plus you get, eventually it leads to what we recognize as numbness. But, you know, cold water swimmers really struggle because their fingers start to crimp and so on. And their muscles get shorter, their elbows flex they get considerably weaker and less efficient. Now, playing on a cold, dry day, at least you don't have to worry about that water factor, mm. but you still have to worry about the fact that catching a ball, executing fine motor skills would be much more difficult in cold conditions than in warm conditions, mm. which is why teams change the way they play. They, they tend not to pass as much because they understand that wide receivers are just not going to be as effective as normal. Mm. So you see more run plays and so on. Mm. Then another interesting thing is a study came out last year showing that concussion risk is higher in the cold, which is interesting. And they didn't the study didn't explore why that might be, mm. because the first obvious thing is oh yeah the ground gets harder, and so you hit your head on the ground. 
But like this Kansas City Stadium, Arrowhead, has got these, they showed it in the broadcast, they've got these massive boilers under the field that keep the ground temperature the same. So that actually would make a big difference to this, the cold sensation on the field because the ground is actually like warmed mm. up. Maybe not to the... <laughs> 20 degrees Celsius no, that yeah, it would be on a normal no, day, but no. it's not, the ground is not negative 20 degrees Celsius. It's two degrees, whatever. It's not, you know, yeah. it's not frozen. Mm-hmm. But the more interesting point there is that not many, certainly in rugby, not many concussions happen on the ground, head ground. In the NFL, it's more, um, particularly the quarterback, when they get tackled backwards, they often, because now you can't get your arms out behind you and they get tackled going backwards and then they hit their heads on the turf behind them so that that is a potential mechanism for more concussion in cold weather i i have a feeling it might I'm be not sure i understand that clearly so what, what i'm still not sure what the what factor the cold plays in that the, the, the theory is that the ground is harder ah okay. and so when you right. fall backwards and you hit your head on the ground you're hitting your head on concrete as opposed to soft grass <laughs> because the grass, yeah which does make sense, but in the mm. NFL, yes, there are more, particularly the quarterback is more at risk of a backward impact on the back of their heads because they're tackled backwards. It doesn't happen much in rugby, actually. Very small proportion of rugby's concussions are from the ground. Mm. Yeah, so that's the one theory. The other theory would be that the way they change the plays and the potential reaction time of players, maybe everything's a little bit slow and subdued in the cold because of this, what I was mentioning earlier, the forces might be down because of cold skins. Maybe that's why the concussion risk is, is different. Mm. I don't know, like it's your ability to, who knows? They didn't explore it, so it's hard to tell. But yeah. uh, my sports scientist brain is working in and going, there must be some other reason why this could happen because yeah. it doesn't yeah, it doesn't add up to me. Mad add up, you no. know. There's, there's definitely something more to that. It could be maybe you are more susceptible to concussions when you're colder. I mean, could be some intrinsic thing to know? do with vascular um, yeah. compliance, so like blood yeah. flow and so on in the brain. I'm no, I'm your, no, your I'm no colder blood vessels are obviously not as then are not as expanded. Could, could well be, and your blood yeah. pressure is probably a bit lower, and it should be higher, wouldn't it? Yeah, if your blood bit. vessels are constricted, constricted, their blood which could be the be thing. I mean, remember there was that. So I call it a scam. We interviewed a guy, James Maliga, last year on the pod, like about this theory that woodpe- woodpeckers use their tongue to compress their jugular vein, and that increases the pressure in their heads, and that's why woodpeckers don't get concussed. So, anyway, that's the theory. That's fe- right. Yes, we actually had a podcast yeah, yeah. exactly why on that. Don't yes, get yeah. <laughs> it turns out that woodpeckers don't actually do that. So, even the theory was false, but James mm. Maliga explained why even that wouldn't make a difference to concussion risk. So, that's not what it is. But there could well be something else in the vascular. I don't mm. know. I mean, I'm nobody's idea of a neurologist, and I'm not going to pretend to be, unlike some but neurologists. I mean, it, it, that, that would be interesting from a from a world rugby perspective, because if you're playing the game in the European <laughs> winter, yes, and there is a factor. So, is there a chance of more concussions in winter than there is so in the, summer? Yeah. So the study, <laughs> the study that found, among other things, temperature increases the cold temperatures increase the risk of concussion came out just at the start of the Rugby World Cup. And you might recall that the first three weeks of the Rugby World Cup were really hot in France. Yeah. used to take water breaks every 20 minutes in the game. And we also saw very few concussions in those first three weeks of the Rugby World Cup. And I jokingly said, well, here's the solution. We just have to play rugby in the summer (laughs) and we'll have fewer concussions. I think I'm not actually suggesting that, but but it's it's certainly now that South Africa is playing in the URC, and we have matches in that competition during our December, January, February. Like this weekend, there are some games where French teams, English teams are out here 
within the next three or four years, we should look to answer this whether mm. games played in South Africa's summer are less likely to cause concussions than games played in South Africa's winter and vice versa for the North. Who knows? Maybe there's something so, there. So there is, I, there I, is potentially, potentially a, 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 a hypothesis there. Yeah, 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 for yeah. sure. Like the finding from that Smaliga paper last year showing more concussions mm. in cold temperatures sets up a hypothesis that mm. would be useful to explore. I'm just not yet persuaded that it's a mm. real finding. I, don't I was going to say, maybe changing the seasonality of rugby would be a significant well, Yeah, and, and, change, that's the thing, and the thing about it me. is like, in the NFL, the colder matches are the back end of the season. So maybe you're seeing, maybe you're seeing an increased risk of concussion because of time in the season, and it just happens yeah. to coincide with cooler temperatures. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Like you got to correct yeah. for lots of different things, right? I was going to say that's your next. That's your I mean, next just two years of research. Just right in there. this conversation, we've come up with three possible <laughs> confounding factors. You see, this stuff's not simple. It's <laughs> eh? not simple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why it's your job at World Rugby. <laughs> Lucky me. So uh, another confounding uh, bit of news is uh, the world champion, Olympic and world champion in the triathlon, uh, Christian Blumenfeld. So he did a test recently where his numbers were shown to be having a VO2 max of over 100, which is, I mean, let's putting that into context, most elite athletes will be between sort of probably above 80, late 70s, oh, that sort that, of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but over 100, I mean, there was... A lot of raised eyebrows about that. Did you did you see that? Did you see the numbers? I did, numbers yeah. And then I watched because a few people on Patreon had actually said you got to watch the series. It's a series being made called the Norwegian Method. Yeah. You know, like Norway now, it's got obviously the Ingebrigtsens and it's got a really strong triathlon program. And there's been a lot of discussion around this Norwegian method, which includes yes. among other things like double sessions at lactate threshold. So they're doing this training. Mm. So they, they they have this episode where they film this guy on a treadmill. Turns out it's Carsten Blumenfeld, right? And he maxes out and then they do this cut to the screen and you can see the VO2 and some of the other measures, the ventilation, minute ventilation, which is liters of air breathed per minute. And what, this, what was the number then on the VO2? The, the VO2 what, what was they, like, they claiming? It was like 7.7 .7 liters per minute. And yeah. at, his, at his mass, was it gives a VO2 max of 102 mils per kilogram per he's minute. Because he's quite a, a biggish fella. Yes, in the mid seventy kilogram yeah, range. So he's not a tiny, stocky. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, a stocky guy. Yeah. Yeah. So seven point seven liters per minute of oxygen, hundred and two mils per kilogram per minute, which is the figure that raised eyebrows. Okay. And minute ventilation, which is the first sign that something's not quite right, was two hundred and forty seven liters per minute. So that means he's breathing in two hundred and forty seven. Now what what's what what what's a normal well, normalish well right there. So Give me some context some on people, that one. Some people posted this, tagged me and, and some other people. Trent Stellingworth was one of those people who then got involved on Twitter. And Trent says, 247 liters per minute. We have data on Olympic gold medal rowers who weigh 100 plus kilograms who don't hit this or don't even get close to that. So 200 liters per minute is considered exceptionally high for a big guy. Mm. 247 for 75 <laughs> suggests that maybe you want to look at your equipment. There might be some and then calibration the other, issues. Then the other thing that I think was even more uh, even more telling is when you do these tests, you, you measure, obviously you're measuring air in and out. So oxygen in, consumed, carbon dioxide out. That ratio, carbon dioxide exhaled to oxygen in, is called the respiratory quotient or exchange ratio. And when it's 0.7, it's got physiological meaning. When that ratio is 0.7, it means you're oxidizing fats, no carbs. So if your energy is coming exclusively from fat oxidation, you breathe out 0.7 liters of carbs, carbon dioxide, for every 
one liter of oxygen. That makes sense. Oh wow, not point seven. Okay, so and, the, so this so, okay. So you are saying yeah. that the gases that you breathe out are, are indicative, reliant, of, indicative of the fuel you're using. Yes. Yeah, wow, yeah, yeah, okay. it's interesting. I never knew that. As you as you go up in intensity and you start to use more and more carbon. Uh, Com- See, I'm getting confused between carbon dioxide and CO2. Uh, carbs. Carbs. I just got <laughs> double confused in explaining my confusion. As your exercise intensity goes up, your reliance on carbohydrates goes up. And then what happens is, relatively, your carbon dioxide exhalation goes up as well. So that ratio rises. And at about 0.85, it's 50-50. So if you ever do a gas test and your respiratory quotient or REO is 0.85, you're getting half your energy from carbohydrates and half from fats. And then as you get a little bit faster, it goes up even more. And so eventually you get 0.9, 0.95. And then you get to one, which is where all your energy in theory is coming from carbohydrates. Because you're burning glucose now and every molecule of glucose gives you one gram of carbon dioxide. One, So every one gram of, sorry, try this again. Every one gram of glucose gives you one carbon dioxide and one VO2. In, out. Makes sense, right? Right, You can look at the equation for oxidizing glucose and you'll see that it takes one oxygen for every one carbon dioxide. One to one. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And just for clarity, when we talk about those, so obviously your your carbohydrates are your fast-burning fuels. Therefore, the higher the the body then moves into a a space where it uses Mm faster-burning fuels. Okay. So by the time you get to the end of a max test, you should be well over one because then what you see what happens is you get to the point where it's carbs now, fat oxidation is really low, it's suppressed. And then you start to actually liberate carbon dioxide from your body's pools because you become, okay, I hate the word, but anaerobic, let's say oxygen independent. And so now you start producing excess lactate and lactate and the acidosis. And now you get, it's anyway, it's a biochemical reaction that takes place. Now all of a sudden your carbon dioxide outstrips your oxygen. So now that ratio, carbon dioxide divided by oxygen goes above one. Make sense? Mm-hmm. And in fact, when you read the protocols of max tests, often they say a, a true max test was inferred because the RQ was above 1.1. In other words, in many labs, if you don't get to 1.1, they don't consider it to be a true max. Right, okay. When when the cameras pan... On, Which means that you're not able to bring enough oxygen to fuel the work. Yeah, at this, at this and point... And therefore, you can become reliant on other fuel sources beyond... You're beyond normal glucose. And so now glucose. you're producing lactate at increasing rates. Yeah. And, you're, you're, and so that CO2 level goes up even beyond the normal ratio of burning only carbs. Now it's indicative that you're liberating carbon dioxide from the body's carbon dioxide pool, the bicarbonate pool. Does that make sense, yes, more or okay, less? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when the camera pans to Blumenfeld's the screen just after his VO2 max, his RQ is 0.94. <laughs> it's not, he's not even... He's not, so he's not flat out, yeah. 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 So Trent Stillingworth says, it says that RER is only 0.94 for a maximum effort. This low RER suggests that VO2 is being over-reported here, which is what I think is the case because because he's exhaling all this carbon dioxide and he's consuming all this oxygen, but that ratio should be way above one. But something's driving the VO2, to, in my opinion, and I agree with Trent, to be too high. Uh, and as a consequence, you're overestimating VO2 max and underreporting what the RER is. Okay. So I don't consider that to be a true, I wouldn't consider that to be a true value. Yeah. I yeah. mean, can you remember offhand what the highest VO2 max that you've actually ever seen? Me, personally, like yeah. mid-70s, but I've never really? tested, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, like a lot of elite cyclists are in the mid-70s. And one of the reasons for it is, 
And runners, it's the same. We tested a bunch of elite Kenyan half marathon 10K guys, average 10K time 28, half marathon 61. Mm-hmm. None of them was above 75. Really? Okay. Yeah, because what they all have, and which paradoxically, or actually logically, if you think about it, reduces VO2 max is exceptional economy. So they are Priuses. They're hybrid cars. They're Toyota, that, not Toyota Prius. They're Teslas, mm. <laughs> you know, as opposed to Ford Mustangs or Formula One cars. Mm. You know that? Mm. So, and, and this is the point is that when you are exceptionally economical or efficient, you don't use as much car, uh, v, uh, oxygen. So your VO2 max is lower. That's, that's what happens. So there's actually, and it's been published, Lucia et al., there's an inverse relationship between VO2 max and cycling efficiency in elite cyclists. Right. Cyclists who have exceptionally high VO2 max tend to have very relatively low efficiency mm. and vice versa. So when you see a cyclist with a low VO2 max, that doesn't mean he's rubbish. It just means that he might be low because he's got something else that makes him exceptional. Sure, her, okay. Right? Because that, that flies in the face of what people have been told for years that VO2 yeah. max was a, was a real indicator of performance. And I think we're part of that change now. Yeah, and I think part of it, and it's a, sort of a segue into where we're going to go with this, is mm. in the beginning, VO2 max is what you could measure. So it became all important. And then you realize, actually, we can measure a few other things. Maybe they're as important. And so running economy or cycling efficiency became important. In fact, a guy called Alan Cousins made a comment on the on the Blumenfeld results saying that if, if you can get to a VO2 max at 102 at the speeds that he's running at, your running economy must be, can okay, I'll try and contextualize, 250 mils per kilogram per kilometer. So every kilometer you run, you are using 250 mils of oxygen per kilogram. That is rubbish. It's so bad that like an elite athlete could not conceivably have that poor an economy. Okay. So that's more evidence that the Blumenfeld numbers just don't add up. Yeah, yeah. You know, the elite Kenyans we tested, economy 180. So that, that what this is saying is that this, this Blumenfeld's 40% worse economically than our good Kenyans. Impossible. He might be 10% worse. Sure, I could get that, but not 40. So, yeah. so again, the implication of Blumenfeld's test is unbelievably bad economy not a max test because of that RQ and a massively overestimated ventilation rate doesn't add up. <laughs> and that, that so, could, I mean, just to suggest, what, what, what does that mean? In other words, there's, there's something wrong with the, with the machinery they're using. It could be a calibration issue. Yes, and so, so Trent Stillingworth, yeah. and I'm going to post a link to this so you mm. can read it there. It's a fascinating is discussion. A guy called Baz van Huren wrote a paper called Accuracy of Respiratory Gas Variables, Substrates and Energies from 15 Different Systems. This was published in 2023, so like late last year. And so basically what they did was they evaluated 15 widely available systems that do this measurement to assess their accuracy. And what they showed is that the error of gas variables, substrates, and energy use differed substantially between systems with only a few systems generating a consistent acceptable error. We extensively discussed the implications. That's not not a great finding. eh? Sure, okay. That means that what exercise physiology labs in the world are using are neither comparable to one another nor might they be reliable sure and the 
And it, yeah, and then how do you establish a baseline exactly for that anyway? I mean, exactly. exactly, who has got the most accurate, and how do you measure that? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's <laughs> so it's a bit and of that's twenty twenty three, right? September twenty twenty three. That paper comes sure. out. So how many years and decades worth of shitty data might there be? <laughs> well, I remember very particularly hearing, and I don't, I don't know why this always sticks in my head, but I remember back in the day when William Toller, the South African who won the New York Marathon in nineteen eighty two, he had a claimed VO two max of eighty four. I don't know why that always stays in my head. But again, that was a long time ago. Mm. And you can imagine that the reliability of that equipment there was vastly different from what it is now. Yeah, I mean, like there used to be there used to be this method called Douglas bags. We had basically these massive balloon-looking bags. And yes, I used to breathe in and out of those. That's still considered the gold standard. Mm. They are reliable because you literally just capture the air in a bag and then you analyze its carbon dioxide and oxygen content later. Mm. And you'd go for a test like this. In the early days, A.V. Hill, there was a famous video or photo I've seen of him sort of sitting on the back of a car strapped to a device and the runner had this tube and like they're, they're swapping Douglas bags out every few minutes as they go through this incremental test. <laughs> now you've got this tech that supposedly makes it all simpler but maybe doesn't reach the same standards that it should. So yeah, so that's that's the situation and um, Trent Crost on Twitter, later in the video I see the use of a VO2 master device which unfortunately did not show up well in this data from Baz Van Hur and makes me question other data too. So there's questions around this and it's a, yeah, it's an interesting catalyst to a conversation about actually the meaning of exercise physiology testing. Yeah. If a, if a, yeah. if a performance is determined by differences of two, three, four percent, which is overstating the red truth, it's probably less. And the device that predicts performance is off by six, seven, eight percent. Does the device have any meaning? Yeah. Not really. <laughs> I guess also, the big question is, do the stats have any meaning at all anyway? And why right. are they relevant? Like, <laughs> yeah, because it's so complex. Because you can have a guy yeah. with a VO2 max of 85 yeah. get beaten by a guy with a VO2 max of 74 because the 74 guy is unbelievably efficient on the bike or economical in the running, plus the ability to sustain threshold. And so it's not VO2 max. It's not VO2 max and running economy and lactate threshold or ability to sustain. There's probably loads of different things and mm-hmm. and one of them yeah. is this next yeah. subject but yeah that's the that's the point yeah. is um, i mean not to give away some yeah. of the information and in the podcast that's coming out uh our next podcast in fact where we interviewed uh, a, a very well-known uh elite level mountain biker who talked about the fact that when he goes riding he knows how unreliable different power meters are yeah. and therefore he only relates his performance to what so that power meter says his own one his own one so he can't go and mm. ride somebody else's bike or go into a lab and say mm-hmm. well he just works on what he knows yeah and he doesn't compare his numbers to other people because his power meter might give a different reading so it's correct it's interesting i yeah, mean it's, yeah, exactly. yeah, it shows you how unscientific science can be yeah and we, <laughs> and we trust blindly that yeah. the newest tech must be the best, but sometimes, yeah, yeah it's not I know that you, I mean, I, I know there's always this tenant, and I'm sure, you, I'm sure you'll confirm this, is that, that when they teach you at sports science, question everything is, yeah, the, yeah. is the key yeah. tenant. You have to question everything. Well, isn't the, that? I mean, is that is that really, yeah, that's yeah, really I, what you have to I, do? I remember yeah. way back when, one of the coolest things I ever did was I gave a presentation at the Royal Society in London, which is the famous scientific institution. And Darwin, for instance, when he came back from his voyage around the world and the HMS Beagle presented at the Royal Society to them, his theories <laughs> sure. of evolution. And I was there, I was invited wow. to give a talk there once. And you walk up the staircase with this grand sort of stained glass window and their motto and coats of arms is there. And the motto is nullius in verbia, which basically means on nobody's word. 
mm. which is to say take no one's word for it and so that's what that's what scientists should be doing yeah, yeah. it's pretty cool to see that stained glass from there yeah. <laughs> yeah. so for those yeah. of you youngsters who are, are studying sports science it's probably a good thing to remember as you go through your careers yeah, to take nobody's word that. for it so we have touched very briefly on the idea of how we measure performance now and one of the things that's caught my eye on the various social media channels is this idea about durability so there's some discussion and we have touched on this a bit last year but it's worth just mentioning because they're saying that in 2024 the measure of performance is going to be durability as opposed to any anything else you know vo2 max and that kind of thing's fallen away and there are questions about what that durability means is it just not is it not just a case of more stamina it's sort of. I mean, I don't want like to wanna like start us off on semantics that lose people, but I think there is an important distinction between semantics and uh, between stamina and durability. It, durability is a type of stamina. It's a, it's a context-specific stamina. So let's first of all say, what do you mean by stamina? Well, the ability to be able to go longer, longer, mm. harder for longer. Okay, so yeah. ability to withstand and resist fatigue yes right fatigue resistance and in fact in some of the articles you often see fatigue resistance and i always i always i always pull up on that wording fatigue resistance because let's say i ask you to do a 10 minute max effort it's the constantia neck climb for us in cape town or it's red hill or whatever 12 minutes whatever that is fatigue resistance is in play there because what i'm asking you to do is to go at 320 watts for 10 minutes can you do it or do you get to eight minutes and then you start to drop off to below 300 watts? That be, that shows me that your stamina or your fatigue resistance is not where it needs to be. We need to develop it. Mm-hmm. So within a task, fatigue resistance is the ability to sustain a certain power output without succumbing to fatigue. Yeah. What durability is saying is the same task either side of a fatiguing bout. So now, instead of a 10-minute bout where my challenge to you is 320 watts, it's to say, let's do a 10-minute bout, then two hours of riding, and then do a 10-minute bout and compare the power in those two 10-minute bouts. So it's a slightly different thing. It's, it is still fatigue resistance, but it's a, in a different context. Does that make sense? In other so words, it's, it's the ability to, re, to recover better? Yeah, it's the ability the to a... withstand right. the accumulated effect of fatigue and then produce as close to your best as possible despite the fact that you've accumulated considerable amounts of fatigue over the course of the the ride so in my head i'm thinking about when we watch the top tour de france riders racing up a climb there'll be an attack but their ability to be able to attack and recover and keep going at a higher level is durability is fatigue resistance is fatigue and, resistance. and, and it could be durability because Okay, Alpes is maybe a little bit on the long side. It's a it's a seven k, eight k climb, twenty minute effort for those guys, mm-hmm. at six watts, six point five watts a kilo, at the end of a Tour de France stage where they've been in the saddle for four and a half hours and then have to do 20, 20 minutes at six and a half. If those same guys had done that same effort fresh, they would have been at six point seven watts a kilo, only very slightly better than when they fatigued. Right. That's durability. Right. How closely can I replicate my best? after a fatiguing bout whereas the strict classic definition of fatigue resistance is how closely can i sustain a power output within a given power they're they're Mm. very similar things but just the context is important because when we talk about durability we're saying is how much does time in the saddle hurt you (laughs) that's what it is yes and what's interesting like this and we had a we discussed it in a pod last year 
there's some data that's come out that the, the under 23 guy and the elite pro tour guy can produce the same power for five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes when they're fresh. The difference is that the pro guy, the pro tour, the Tour de France viable candidate is able to get really close to that fresh power even after two and a half, three hours of riding. That under 23 guy or the less quality, the the poorer, I don't want to use that word, it sounds, they're, they're still amazing cyclists, mm-hmm. they drop off more as a consequence of time in the saddle. Yeah, it makes sense. Make sense? It, it does make sense. And I, and I think to some extent, I'm just always trying to bring it back to, and I'm sure many of you who do endurance sport will kind of learn to understand that. It's the ability to be able to go out, particularly on a, for instance, we have an, a ride that we do every Wednesday called the Wednesday Whip. And I always think it's an interesting um, indicator of the whip part of that ride is a very fast segment where everybody races flat out. By the end of that segment, I always feel slightly nauseous as if I'm going to bring up some bile. And um, But my ability to be able to recover and keep going at the pace that we were maintaining before that ride has become significantly shorter as I've got mm. fitter. Mm. So I'm trying to relate that to my own, yeah. but it sounds like it's it's about that. So for the top performers, they don't want to have a hard effort and just die. They want to have a half effort and still be able to maintain and, yeah. and stay with... And repeat that. So it's your ability to yeah. repeat or to get as close to your fresh max as mm. possible despite accumulated work. Mm. So for the whip, for instance, it's about a 700 meter long sort of sprint we do. <laughs> it takes about a minute. Trying to be pro-athlete. It takes a it. minute to a minute and 20 depending on the wind direction here in yeah. Cape Town because it's either straight into or straight with the wind. So it's yeah. a highly variable segment. <laughs> like, okay, and we, we the, whip, the whip is like 35 minutes into the ride. So it's probably not far enough in. But what would you what, want to be asking in terms of durability is right. I know that my mate Craig who wins the whip can do 620 watts for that minute and that's what he's going to do to beat me okay but if I make the pace for the first 35 minutes really hard then let's see if he can do 620 watts or will he drop to 550 yeah and is that my chance to beat the guy so in other words I'm going to preload Craig with fatigue and then hope that my chances are better because my durability is better than his yes so when we see so again Tour de France Jonas Vinegar in those Alpine stages when he wins the tour, the last two tours, has been the same model. Is we're going to make the stage really, really hard. And then by the time we get to the second last last year or two years ago, the last climb, Pogaccia won't be able to produce what Pogaccia normally does. Now, that might be heat. It might be pre-fatigue from days before. But it's the same concept as Vinegar is placing a bet that he can, he can compromise Pogaccia more by loading him before the decisive climb than himself. Yeah. Yes. In a fresh race, they reckon. I reckon they are very close together, but in a fatigued state, that's where the difference is going to be made, and that's yeah. for various reasons in this particular context, right? So, and similar to win Flanders, Pogacar knows that he's going to need two minutes on the Quaramont and fifty-three seconds on Paterberg at a certain wattage, but Funapool can also do that wattage. So therefore, Pogacar says, well, I'm going to not let you do that fresh. I'm going to hurt you over the course of the 30Ks before that decisive climb. And then my durability will be the difference between us. Mm. Because I can, I can do in a fatigued state closer to my best than you can do in your fatigued state. Yeah. And that's how I'm going to win. 
So it sounds like, I mean, the quote from um, the performance coordinator of the UAE Team Emirates, which is one of our South African doctors who literally just uh, is uh, just down the road from where we are now, Jeroen Swat saying, the big thing in training science at the moment is durability. It's a hot topic in research circles and in terms of performance implementation. Because there's a couple of questions. First of all, how do you measure it? Mm. And then I guess the second question, if you can measure it, then how do you train for it? Yes. So the measurement part is easier, at least on the surface, because... The definition of durability is how much do you drop off a level of effort when you are loaded with fatigue. So it's easy. You do the effort without fatigue and then you do the effort after fatigue and you just compare them. And you say, my five-minute best in a fresh state is 300 watts. My five-minute best when I'm fatigued is 250 watts. Therefore, I've dropped off by 17%. My durability is 83. Not very good. Right. Now, improving it's another story, but that's how you measure it. So, right. And whether that's a one-minute effort, a five-minute, a ten, you can decide depending on the context of what you're preparing for. If you are going to do a race and you know that it's going to take a ten-minute effort, that's the durability component you'd want to work on. Makes sense, right? Yeah. So it's, it's actually real basic. Like you could, you could do this on our Friday ride. If you jumped on your trainer your, and you measured your power output for a three-minute max effort before we go, then we go do our normal ride, normal speed, Come back, do the three-minute again. Durability is just the drop-off. Mm. Well, the inverse. Yeah. One minus the drop-off. Makes sense, yeah? yeah? Now, the thing about it is where it gets a little nuanced is what should the fatiguing bout be? Like, say, so in the study, for instance, it was two and a half hours at, say, 60% of peak power or half of 50% of lactate threshold or whatever the case is. So that dose of fatigue has to be standardized because if I do a five-minute effort at home and then I go ride two hours hard or two hours easy, I'm going to get quite a different durability outcome when I do my five-minute post. Makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. So you'd want to standardize. So ideally, you'd want to do the whole thing on an indoor training. You want to do a five-minute effort, then two hours at 150 watts, and then a five-minute effort. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? How much did mm -hmm. I lose because of loading fatigue on myself? That's mm -hmm. durability. Swimming actually does this quite well because in swimming, I used to do a lot of master swimming, and we used to do sets where you would do 100 meters on... 130, one minute 30. And what you would do is you would do 10 times 100 on 130 and then you'd come in at about 120 and then you'd have 10 seconds to rest. Okay, and then again. the key marker on that and the key uh, message from the coaches in that situation is try and keep your 100 meters exactly the same. In other words, don't, you should be able to swim hard have that 10 second rest and swim hard again. again and again and again, mm. 10 times. And that was the key marker for, for those sets. Not to go super hard, 115, so then run 25 and then at the end. So you're just the barely turning before you've got Correct. to be touching. Before. So you want to, be, you want to have that durability to be able to be able to maintain a high pace mm. for a long time. So it was, yeah. that's a good, uh, so yeah. Again, I would, I would say that's more on the fatigue resistance side. Durability yeah. is a component of it where you, you sandwich a, a fatiguing bout either side of a test and the, the yeah, comparison okay, of the test yeah, pre-post is a difference. difference there yeah, so a yeah, slight difference yeah. but I think quite an important one now as to how you train it I suspect it's not trained any differently to fatigue resistance what you spoke earlier about the whip where we do that effort then there's a hard 700 meters then often like there's a few little short rolly climbs people go hard at different times and so on and then you can do that last climb at the end well, I'd be looking at durability and saying like can I do that last climb as close as possible to my max? That's durability. Yeah. Now, yeah. Training that means repeating the stimulus and the stress of like overlaying the demand to do high intensity work off the back of preloaded fatigue. Mm -hmm. 
that's what that's how you would yeah. have to train that. But yeah. you'd also train that by saying we want the stress of the in a pro tour the four hours before the final climb. We need that to not be as stressful. Like mm. that's not really training durability per se, but it's going to make you more look more durable. Is if the mm. if the loaded fatigue doesn't affect you as much because it's not as large. That's mm. the, the the same dose doesn't cause the same fatigue. That's the other way to do it. So you could do it in two ways, I think. And it sounds like it's the sort of idea behind it is very specific to cycling because in every other endurance event, whether it's triathlon, maybe triathlon to some extent, particularly the Olympic distance, most of the time it's just, it's almost like a time trial effort. So it's about maintaining a high speed and, and yeah. wattage yeah, for that a long part period of, it, of time. Sure. sure. Run, so, running is a little different maybe. But not but quite yeah. as not quite as te- you don't you do surge a bit, I suppose, in running, but not to like, the same extent as you do in cycling. I'll offer you one example of where people often get this wrong is if you're watching the last five K of a marathon and one of there's two guys or women racing each other and one of them's from a track background and the other's not. The commentators will always say that athlete with a track background has the speed and therefore they're the favourite to win this race. They don't consider the fact that there's 37 k's that have been run and that those 37 k's may blunt the speed of that one athlete mm. with a track background but then again it really happens the track athlete normally yes, does the track win. athletes normally like get great pedigree like it's yeah. helena berry or it's sifan hassan like mm. doesn't matter how you run the race she's beating you right okay like but you do see it sometimes though so like if mo farrah for instance just didn't have the durability to convert his track pedigree into a good marathon so Mo Farah against any of the athletes who were running against him at the time, Kipsang or whatever, for instance, in a 1.5, in a 5,000 or a 10,000, he's beating them. But if he's with them with 10K to go in a marathon, I know who my money's on. Mm. Because Kipsang's ability to run as close to his 10K best at, in at a the fatigue the state marathon. at the end of a marathon is way better than what Farah ever managed to develop. And so that's a durability difference maker. Mm. Does that... There's an example. That's a very one. good example, actually. So, yeah. so, so, like for runners, I would, I would say the same thing is true. It's you're right. The 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 range of speed and acceleration differences is nowhere near as large in running. We're talking a shift from two fifty eight to k to two fifty three is winning the race. Mm. In cycling, it's from three hundred and fifty watts to eight hundred. <laughs> it's a big difference. Yeah. But it's the same concept in running. Is that you can put two athletes with two k's to go. And you can say, oh, the one who's got the fastest 2K is winning. No, they're not. The one who's got the ability to run a fast 2K off the back of a 40K fatigue load, that's the athlete who's winning. Mm-hmm. That's the key. Okay. Yeah. Oh, there we go. That's a good way of yeah. it. I hope, I hope you all understand that. I think I understand it a lot better from my initial um, reading of that article. So, yeah, it is an interesting space. Anyway, that's us for today. Um, yeah, there we, were, are some, we didn't even get to do New Year's resolutions. Well, we can talk very briefly about yeah, New Year's resolutions. What, what are your New Year's resolutions well, in I've terms of mine, our podcast? I've chosen mine as introductions to topics we're going to cover this year. So number right. one is lift more weights. Right. Because I've, there's been a quite a good discussion on Patreon, actually, in response to my latest post, in which I linked to an article talking about the health benefits of resistance training, yes. which... I think I've always been known, but have now been expanded because it used to be lean muscle mass and strength. You do resistance, cardiovascular health, you do endurance, cardio type training. The crossover between those two types is considerably larger than was ever thought and understood and recognized and respected. Yes. And so therefore resistance training has benefits way more than just get strong, get toned. (laughs) So more resistance training. 
and we want to cover that. So I will get Stuart Phillips and other experts on the pod to try and unpack and explain how you go about doing mm. it. Because I think that it's, again is complex and how you really, do that. Yeah. And the problem in that space is even more than endurance is that there's just so many people trying to sell you something. Yeah. Like the number of charlatans in resistance training is probably double that in, in the other in endurance space. So we got to we got to do a bit of scientific education around lifting weights. Like, do you lift heavy or light? High reps, low, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Then my second one is to eat more cocoa pops. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you better give us the context of that because so the know. context of that is uh, last year we discussed a lot about the shift in endurance sport to say that. We are probably historically underfueled with carbohydrates, even real, not. And I'm not talking about the low carb movement where the pendulum swung way over to the left. I'm talking even before that, in the professional sport, like the target used to be 60 to 80 grams an hour. It's now 100 to 140 grams an hour. So the requirement for carbohydrates is one of, and and fueling with carbs, I think, is one of the big things that has changed in sports science in the last five or six years. And I was listening to a podcast that, again, that performance process hosted by Ronan McLaughlin from Escape Collective. And they interviewed the nutritionist from Bora Hansgrohe. And he said, one of the most common foods that you will see a professional cyclist eating the day of a race or stage in the tour is Cocoa Pops. Why? Because in the, in the immediate short term before they start, what your body needs is just the simplest, fastest, most direct, direct sugar it can possibly get. Mm. And Cocoa Pops is the go-to for those guys. So I said, right, I'm buying Cocoa Pops. And so now I wake up at 5.30 or 6, whatever it is in the morning. I have a bowl of Cocoa Pops with very little milk because milk is a problem for some people. Mm. And then off I go. And that's my first fueling strategy for the rides. And then I carry, obviously, fuels with me, which I also never used to do. But I'm trying this year to fuel better, better. to see what it does to my own recovery and performance. So that's why Cocoa Pops is on my New Year's resolution. And you quoted this the other day when we were riding. Yeah. We were talking about, who was it again that we interviewed, talking about fuel effort. What was the quote where you fuel fuel oh, Graham Close? Graham Close, that's like right. Like three yeah, seasons him. ago or something. Graham yeah. Close is a nutritionist, has yes, worked in multiple right. sports, and he says the uh, number one rule is fuel for the task at hand. That's right. That's what you said. So if you are doing nothing and sitting at a desk, couch, even going shopping, whatever it is, Saturday morning I go to the builder's warehouse. I'm doing DIY, whatever. That, that's not strenuous. I don't need those cocoa pops. Mm-hmm. But if I'm going for a 60k ride. And I'm not going to wake up at four in order to eat breakfast two hours before I pedal. Mm. I need something in the tank before I go. And then I need something as I go. So I need to have something on the bike, in the bottle, in the gel, whatever the case is, before mm. we get to the coffee stop. And yeah, and we and we, we really need to, like we touched on it so often last year. You said in our last part of 2023 that one of the best parts of the year was the one where we got into this carb stuff. And I know you've tried fueling as well, differently. Yeah. Not and to the same extent you have, but over the longer distance, it has made a significant it difference. Does. It definitely does. And yeah. I, I've noticed now that I'm changing from an an, a, a lar- an owl into a lark going these morning rides. Mm, you have. But if I, don't, if I don't take, even for a short 40K, one and a half hour ride, if I don't take something in a bottle, I get home at 7.30, 9, 8, and by 10 o'clock, I'm ready to eat a, three-course meal i'm mm. absolutely ravenous the bottle keeps the hunger at bay and so it's, it shows you that like your body is asking for fuel and if mm. you don't give it there's potential consequences so mm. i'm trying all of this the cocoa pops i say so somewhat tongue-in-cheek but there's a broader 
fuel strategy. And For I think sure. this year we must get some guests on to really explore this a little bit yeah. more. It, it feeds into, I know you've been talking about intermittent fasting. Like, how do you fit that into an active lifestyle, for instance? Well, I mean, that, that, that's one of my goals for this year in this podcast is to kind, of, to kind of get into the weeds of things like that. Because there is so much, you know, disinformation and information. And people have been sending me research articles around fasting. I've tried a bit of it myself. After two days, I'm still, I'm over it, you know, <laughs> like it just doesn't seem, but then you speak to a dietitian and I remember a couple of years ago, mm. well, not a couple of years ago, a year ago, spending some time with the dietitian and the strategy made a lot of sense, you know, eat eat early in the morning, do what you're doing, feel what you need, your, feel when you need the fuel. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm just very interested to see what the real experts talk about when they talk about things like fasting diets because people yeah. really believe in that stuff mm. and i want to know how much of that stuff is but, really achievable yeah, yeah. and I, I agree but we have to we have to do it with people who understand exercise because yes. i think the Very person much. the person who can get away with fasting relatively easily and who's inactive is not a good case study for the person listening i hope to this podcast and mm. us yeah um because again there's quite good evidence that if you underfuel regularly, even through the day, never mind during the bout, that your that your fatigue, your overtraining is more risky, your risk of illness and injury, your mood states, everything is negatively compromised. So fueling for the task at hand, again, Graham Close credit, is really necessary. Um, and how you then fit that, does that fit with sporadic intermittent fasting when the fuel isn't required for the task at hand as opposed to those that it is you know you ride mm. you ride wednesday saturday sunday morning those are not fasting days maybe yeah mm. does it work if you only do it half the time i think there's really interesting questions mm. there and people do a lot exercise. of fasting rides don't they yeah Lots I, of and people i used to that right? and like coaches, i used to yeah. but i just have found that i could do that yeah, I just I just can't do that when I'm riding every morning. It's just mm. uh, uh, by by Thursday, Friday, I'm just overeating in the afternoons mm. and the evenings to try and make up for what I wasn't fueling myself yeah. with. Plus, I'm interested to see like if I get that fueling on the bike ride and I can suppress appetite beyond the bike ride, whether that might help with weight loss, for instance. Because mm. I mean, <laughs> last year, sat in your office, I said I had. Uh, my goal was to lose five kilograms, and by the end of the year, last year, I had seven to go. I feel like this year I can make the same joke, <laughs> and I'd prefer not to. I'd actually like to hit a goal for a change, and that's not be in the negatives. So, yeah, let's, let's see. That's definitely a topic I want to explore a lot of this year. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, so don't forget, you can send us uh, your suggestions. Tell us what you'd like to hear about and any ideas that you might have for us to uh, be able to investigate and bring in the experts. Because one of the nicest things about what we've done in the last couple of years on this podcast is bring in some of the experts and not just, you know, the, the lightweights, the, the, the major players in this market who are really able to give us um, the, 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 the information that we need. So that's, that's, that's one of the things we're looking forward to having more of this year. The next podcast we've got, we've got an exciting guest and always lovely to have a very top top athlete explaining what his life is like as a top athlete so that's our next podcast that's coming out in just over a week from now and keep that in mind as well so but uh we're looking forward to good 2024 and we're looking forward to having you all involved in our patreon site of course you can join us on there and be part of the discussion on there and of course on all of our social media as well always lovely to hear from you all plus an olympic plus, games plus an olympic games. unaffected by covid it'll be our first olympics sure. not tainted by COVID. We yes, hope. there we go. So that'll yeah. be an exciting, so a big year in sport ahead uh, in many different ways. But for now, it's goodbye. 
You have been listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on X, Facebook, Instagram, and join the conversation on our exclusive Science of Sport Patreon page. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.